Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Founded by freed slaves in the early 19th century, the Candomblé Temple Casablanca in Salvador Bahia was the first Afro-Brazilian place of worship in Brazil. But despite its religious and historic significance, the story of Casablanca's origins has remained the stuff of oral traditions until the recent discovery of written documents by today's guest, Lisa Earl Castillo. This year, Lisa is a fellow at the National Humanities Center working on a new book which situates the temple and its founders within the greater social history of Brazil and is a place that offers special insight into the lives of freed and enslaved individuals on either side of the Atlantic. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. So could you please situate for us situate historically and the cultural significance of this temple in Bahia? Well, this temple, which in Portuguese is referred to as the Casa Branca, as you mentioned, and also has a name in the Yoruba language of West Africa, Ile Ache Yanaso Oka, was founded by people from that part of Africa, Yoruba-speaking people, who were being, at that time, brought to Brazil as slaves in very large numbers because of wars associated with the fall of an empire called the Oyo Empire. The Yoruba people at that time were not, um, although they shared a common language and shared uh, common cultural and religious beliefs, they were not really a single entity. But one, they were a number of city-states. And one of these states, Oyo, had conquered several of its neighbors and also some non-Yoruba-speaking kingdoms and was a political power for about 200 years. But at this time, because of internal dissent and also a, a jihad that was being carried out by a local Islamic caliphate, it was disintegrating. Oyo was disintegrating. And as Oyo's political power disintegrated, other wars, civil wars, kidnappings, all kinds of things, uh, be roving warlords began to spring up. And the captives from all these situations were mainly being sold into the slave trade, which at this point, there was, of course, the inter-African slave trade. You know, some captives were sold up to North Africa, but most people were being sold into Atlantic slavery, which at this time was Brazil and Cuba. So why this fascination? Why, why the, um, this cult almost of the, of the thunder god Shango? Well, Shango was the symbol of Oyo's political authority. And Oyo, uh, in conquering neighboring states, brought the, the cult of Shango to its, its vassal kingdoms. So a lot of the people from the neighboring kingdoms had incorporated Shango worship into their practice along with other deities, which were more local for them. Uh, but also many people from Oyo itself were being sold into slavery. And so many, many people who came into Brazil at this time, and the same thing holds for Cuba, they were Shango worshippers. And so of the Yoruba pantheon, which includes, well, in, in Africa they say that there are at least 451 Orishas. <laughs> That's the name for a deity. Uh, in Brazil today you have uh, 16 major deities, and of those, Shango is one of the most important. 
Now, this is a site of, um, of international diasporic memory. It's on the UNESCO Slave Root Project. But it's not the same, as I gather, um, as slaveholding societies and more familiar with in the Anglophone world. So describe the differences for us. Well, one of the differences in um, Latin America, the, the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking regions, there was relatively more upward mobility for enslaved people in the sense that manumission, uh, that is an owner who would free some of his slaves, occurred more frequently than it did in the English-speaking world. How did people get their manumission? Well, sometimes the owner would spontaneously decide to reward good service for, with manumission for free. This was actually a minority of the circumstances. What usually happened was that the captive bought his or her freedom with money that they had earned. How did they earn the money? In uh, urban Brazil, and to a lesser extent in uh, rural areas, many captives, they worked for wages. That is, their owner would rent them out to someone, or the captive themselves would be kind of freely hiring themselves out with the condition that they had to give a percentage of their earnings to the owner. If they were able to make more than what they had to give to their owner, that was theirs to keep. So you have an almost kind of ironically uh, upward mobility in this slaveholding society, or at least the possibility thereof. Yes. It was a possibility that not everyone was able to reach, but mm -hmm. the possibility of it being there in some way helped to stabilize the regime of mm -hmm. slavery. We also have this strange situation whereby we have these religious practices then transported by the slaves um, or freed slaves back to West Africa, correct, in the roughly 1830s, and then a return back to uh, Bahia. What are the historical circumstances surrounding that? And that seems like a, again, a sort of strange um, journey and passage. At the Casa Branca, in the 1830s, the founding priestess is remembered in oral traditions today by the name Yanaso, which is a name that belongs to a Shango priestess. She had two sons who were accused of participating in a slave uprising that occurred in 1835. It was an uprising that was led by Muslim slaves and freedmen. And the evidence suggests that her sons were wrongly accused. That is, they were not Muslims, but they had been involved in some things which the authorities believed were suspicious. And so they were convicted on very shaky evidence of having participated in this uprising. And their mother petitioned the government to uh, commute their sentence to deportation. And the petition was granted. And so her sons were deported, and she went to Africa with them. So in that sense, she was traveling with them and, and settled in uh, present-day Benin in the city of Ouida. Now, they were not the only ones who went. There were about 1,000 people who left Brazil after this uprising. Around 200 of them were deported. 
And most of them were Yoruba speakers, I would say, uh, roughly half of them. But there were also people who were Muslims, actually. Some of the Yoruba speakers were also Muslims, but some of them followed the traditional religion. In any case, they settled mainly in present-day Benin, in the city of Ouida, in another city along the coast of Benin called Agwe. And then some people also went to Accra in Ghana and other people went to Lagos in present-day Nigeria. But the interesting thing is that in almost all the cases, the people were not resettling into their home regions. They were resettling along the coast to port cities that already had some involvement in Atlantic commerce, which at that point was mainly the slave trade. But they were not in their home regions, which means that they were bringing with them deities that were not native to that particular region. In fact, also in the case of Islam, the Muslims who settled in Benin at this time, they brought Islam to a part of Benin that at that time did not have Islam. And so it transformed in a certain way the local practices in West Africa. And they remained throughout the 19th century in smaller numbers. Other people, freedmen, returned from Brazil uh, to West Africa and settled in, in more or less the same communities and uh, kept to themselves in a certain way. There's a, an important book on the subject. The title is Negros Estrangeros, The Black Foreigners. And the author contends that the Africans in Brazil were treated as foreigners because you know they were not from Europe, they were dark-skinned, they were in the caste system that slavery created. You know They were at the bottom of the social pyramid. They were outsiders. And the same thing was ironically true when they returned to Africa because they were not going home, quote unquote, but to a part of Africa that was a different place. And so they were still outsiders, even in Africa. And hence the interest in returning back to Brazil again? Well, the interest in returning back to Brazil, because in, in some cases you had families that were divided mm -hmm. by the return. You had one member of the family who went to Africa and resettled there, and you had other members of the family who remained in Brazil, whether because they were still enslaved, whether because they simply didn't have the money to buy the passage. In any case, there was transit to and fro among uh, affective communities, let's say, mm -hmm. not necessarily just family, but extended social networks. And there was also trade that was happening mm -hmm. as well. The people who, when they traveled to Africa, they would bring with them products that they had bought in Brazil, which were of interest to other uh, returnees mm -hmm. living in Africa. And then, likewise, when they were going in the direction from West Africa to Brazil, they were bringing products with which the Africans in Brazil wanted to buy. So some of the back and forth movement, I think it's kind of hard to separate. The, the social networks were important, but the economic activity, let's mm -hmm. say, made the travels possible. So we previously knew about this primarily through um, oral history, oral narrative. And one of the great innovations of, of your project is that you actually have discovered written documents. Could you talk to us about how you discover these documents and what those documents are? Yeah, and in, in fact, this is a story I like to tell because at the beginning of this project, I really had no intention of doing historical research and had never done it before. But I had gone to the archives in Bahia with the idea that maybe it was possible to find some documents 
about some of the more important figures remembered in oral traditions. And I just started going through the documents, and one of the first things that I found was the probate record of the second priestess of this temple. Her Brazilian name was Marcelina da Silva, and her Yoruba name was Obatosi. She was a Shango worshiper as well. And the oral traditions remembered her as accompanying Yanaso, the founder of the temple, when Yanaso returned to Africa. And as I'm leafing through this document, it's a very long document because she had a daughter and she had a husband, and the daughter was not the um, child of the husband. It was by an earlier relationship. And the daughter and the husband were fighting over the inheritance. One of the things that the husband used to discredit the daughter was that he said, and we were here all these years working, sweating, busting our butts in order to accumulate the property which the defendant now claims is hers, when all that time she was off in Africa doing what? Nothing. She contributed nothing to all of this. Hmm. So this was the first indication. It was a reference, because in the oral tradition, it also remembers the daughter of Obatosi as having gone to Africa. So this was the first indication that this trip had actually happened. I found that, and I was just kind of flabbergasted. And I said, wait a minute, I've got to start looking for other documents. It took some time, but the next thing that I discovered was that Obatosi had actually been the slave of Yanaso. And her return to Africa with Yanaso, and this is documented because I found her freedom letter. I found her baptism record and her freedom letter. Where, where did you find it? In the archives uh -huh. in, in Bahia. Uh -huh. No, the archives in Bahia, they're a wonderful treasure trove. A uh -huh. lot of the documents are decaying so badly. The, the paper has darkened, yeah. and the ink has lightened, and they're very difficult to read. And sometimes you lift the page, and it crumbles in mm -hmm. your hand. It's all eaten through by termites. But there's a lot of in, very interesting documents in there. So anyway, I found the passport records of the whole group that showed that they left in 1837. And uh, then a couple of years later, I was given a tip by a friend who had gone through the British records, and she had located a letter that was addressed to the husband of Yanaso in Wida. Mm -hmm. And that was how I was able to establish that that was where they had gone, because the oral traditions actually remembered a slightly different location. And from there, I was working with a colleague of mine who was actually a fellow here at the Humanities Center a few years ago. And in fact, it was when he was at the Humanities Center on his fellowship, Luis Nicolau Pare is his name. We were in dialogue about this work the whole time. And in fact, the first article that was published on the subject, we published together. After I had discovered this letter that said that they had gone to Wida, he was going through some old ethnographic reports from Benin from the, the beginning of the 20th century and located the name of a temple that had been founded by this same husband of Yanaso in Wida. Tell us about 
why you're personally so committed to this project. What has made you passionate about this project? What, what in your life or development as a scholar has brought you to this and made you want to dedicate so much time to it? Well, one of the things that I think began to stand out for me as I uncovered more and more evidence, these were not the only people from the temple who returned to Africa over the course of the 19th century. There were other people who came in at later points who were also traveling back and forth. And I began to realize that the story of the Casablanca was an extraordinary story of mobility by freed Africans. In the 19th century, during the time of slavery, some people were still enslaved at the time when they returned to Africa with other Africans who had been their masters. It also illustrated the uh, kind of paradoxical, insistent presence of slavery in the lives of freed Africans. That is, many people, they were African-born, they were slaves in Brazil, they got their freedom, they became slave owners, and yet the relationships, while there was definitely a relationship of subjugation, of domination, but the relationships were also somewhat different because there was not the barrier of race separating slave and master. And the other thing that happened in many cases, as was the case of Yanaso and Obatosi, they shared a common language, they shared a common culture. They were not from vastly different regions of Africa. I won't say that they were from the same city because I don't know. They had some commonalities. And so this raises questions about what enslavement meant and who could be enslaved and who did the enslaving. And they also, in the case of the Casablanca, they not only traveled to Africa, but they also had relationships with, let's say, I don't want to say necessarily subsidiary, but people from the Casablanca were involved in founding temples in other parts of Brazil. So there was not only the mobility back and forth across the Atlantic, but also to other cities in Brazil, like Rio de Janeiro, for example. And the oral traditions remember this. They remember that a Shango priest named Bamboche Obitico, who was also an Ifa diviner, they remember that he traveled to Rio. They remember that he was involved in founding a temple there. And I found the documents that proved that he had been there. And so I think it's also a story about the importance of oral traditions as historical texts. Absolutely. So what a fascinating project and, and what a wonderful discovery and contribution. Thank you, Lisa Earl Castillo. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.